News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, tomorrow, of course, is Remembrance Day, and just about, like, almost everything for 2020, it won't be the same as we are usually able to mark Remembrance Day. And I know the Legion has gone all out to try to make sure it's still, though, top of mind for people. Boy, they have worked so hard on this. There's this new survey out from Historica Canada as well uh, that says they're a little concerned about people's knowledge of military history, because according to this survey, uh, they found that four in ten Canadians feel they know more about American military history than Canadian military history. And they say that's actually up. Uh, So more people feel they know about American military history this year versus last year. Meanwhile, 16% of Canadians are saying they actually never learned about Canada's key conflicts in school, or maybe they weren't paying attention. They say they didn't learn about enough about the First World War, the Second World War, the Korean War, the October crisis. So that's a lot, I think, for us to think about today. And if we are going to be celebrating, or say celebrating, if we are going to be commemorating at home for Remembrance Day tomorrow, good time to maybe have that conversation, explore a little of the history online with your kids. And remember, there's... This is going to be very important for the Royal Canadian Legion tomorrow. They are also asking Canadians to observe those ceremonies from home. And this is a very significant year as well as we mark the 75th anniversary of the end of the Second World War. So we thought right now, let's pause a moment here for a special report from Terry Pedwell at the Canadian Press. The Royal Canadian Legion said it best on its website. In today's fast-paced world, it can be easy to take our way of life for granted and forget what so many men and women sacrificed for our freedoms. This was supposed to be a year of commemorations of the 75th anniversary of the end of the Second World War. And while the moment will be the focus of this year's ceremonies of the National War Memorial, those ceremonies will be nothing like what Canadians have experienced for decades. The COVID-19 pandemic has forced the Legion to ask people not to gather at the memorial for the service and instead watch it on TV or listen to it on the radio. The 75th anniversary commemorations were supposed to include veterans going back to the Netherlands, which Canada helped to liberate at the end of the war in Europe. Instead, COVID-19 scuttled those plans. Alex Fitzgerald Black, Outreach Director for the Juneau Beach Centre Association, which owns and operates the museum built on the beach where Canadians went ashore on D-Day, says 2020 is a lost opportunity for commemorating Canada's Second World War role. While the Juneau Beach Centre has launched online efforts to discuss the war, it's been hoping for 90,000 visitors this anniversary year. Fitzgerald Black says it will be lucky to get a third of that number as COVID-19 has cancelled most international travel and forced the museum to close its doors for months. It's a real shame. I know a lot of veterans we've talked to were really excited to go back to the Netherlands, maybe one last time uh, for for the 75th anniversary of the liberation. And unfortunately, that's not happened. There was some hope that maybe in 2021 they could do 75 plus one, but it it doesn't seem like things are going to (laughs) get... The new normal is still going to be with us then, I think, too. So... We may have lost that last opportunity to get, you know, a a great number of veterans over there. Good morning. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Ron Elkema, Commanding Officer of the 48th Highlanders of Canada. With me is Chief Warrant Officer Reeser, the Regimental Sergeant Major. 
and I'd like to welcome you to our 2020 Remembrance Day event. So while COVID-19 has made a casualty of so many Remembrance Day gatherings, there is no shortage of commemorations. From community groups to cities, towns, schools, local legions, and military units, Remembrance Day this year has gone online. The 48th Highlanders of Canada are already on YouTube, encouraging Canadians to remember any way they can. Today, we remember the service and sacrifice that Canadian soldiers, and particularly members of the 48th Highlanders of Canada, gave and continue to give to our country and our citizens. What is important is not where we remember, but that we remember. And as federal politicians noted in the House of Commons recently, it is the remembering that counts. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Our veterans step served Canada with honour and valour right across this country and all around the world. They stepped up for us, and now it's time for us to do the same for them. We don't need to wonder how we will rise to the moment because we need only look around Canada to see the answer. We see it in young people getting groceries for older veterans to keep them safe. We see it in frontline workers who, after hours of standing on tired feet, never give up as they care for our parents and grandparents, the last members of the greatest generation. But it's not just remembering those who made the ultimate sacrifice. Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole, in sharing his thoughts about Remembrance Day, told the Commons that current-day veterans, sometimes suffering with invisible scars, need support from their families, their friends, and elsewhere. His point being that they are remembered too. I know there are veterans across Canada who may be struggling with the invisible wounds of service during this unique Remembrance Week. I know that you may feel alone when you think of your laughing comrades. This pandemic has put a pause to the traditions that bind us. It has robbed us of our capacity to see our friends who suffer from operational stress injuries. I know that families feel hollow looking at the empty seat at their dinner table. I want you to know you're not alone. You have a grateful nation with you. You have friends and comrades that want you to reach out. You have supports. You are loved, and we are all here for you. You're going to get through this week, just as our country is going to get through this pandemic. Please know that on Remembrance Day, and on every day, your country will never forget your service and your sacrifice, lest we forget. For years, such veterans have been told not to self-isolate, but instead to get out of their basements and connect with different support programs. Terry Pidwell, The Canadian Press. Now, there is a lot going on over in Denmark right now. You probably heard some of it in the news. Millions of mink were going to be destroyed over fears that they were harboring a mutated form of COVID-19. There has been, though, a bit of an uproar from the opposition in that country. So we're going to find out now what is going on there. So joining us is former CKNW reporter, freelancer in Denmark, Shane Woodford. Good morning, Shane. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So what is going on with the mink? Are they going ahead with this call? <laughs> yeah, I I believe they are. That is a little bit up in the air right now. There was a political controversy that exploded this morning. Uh, and if we go back to late last week, as you referenced there, there was a COVID variant called Cluster 5 identified in the mink uh, that seemed to be resistant to coronavirus antibodies. Thus, it would undermine the potential effectiveness of any vaccine coming down the pipe. So 
All the mink in the country were ordered slaughtered by the government, and a huge chunk of the country was essentially put into lockdown. They can't go anywhere. Everything's closed. Everybody works from home. Passenger trains can't go into that area. Uh, And then fast forward to this morning, and we find out that the government had no legal authority to issue an order to kill all of the country's mink. It was, in fact, illegal. And so just barely a half hour, hour ago in the Folketing, which is the Danish parliament, uh, Denmark's Prime Minister, Meta Frederiksen, uh, pretty much threw her food and agriculture minister, Moens Jensen, under the bus, saying this is all on his head. And now, as I understand it, the government is scrambling to replace an illegal order uh, with a legal one. Okay. And I think a lot of people wonder when they hear this. I mean, Shane, I I had no idea mink was such a big industry in Denmark. Yeah, I didn't either, to be be fair. Uh, And since the mink thing, uh, the world has exploded recently. But here in Denmark, it's been going on for about a month. There has been coronavirus in the mink. The cluster five aspect is the new thing, but they have been killing mink for weeks now, uh, now more urgently. Uh, So I was unaware of the role of farm mink in Denmark, just as you are. And so I began to look into it uh, as all this news was kind of developing around me. And it turns out Denmark contributes about 40% of the mink fur supply to the global fur market. Matter of fact, it is one of the largest countries in the world to contribute mink fur to the global fur market, surprisingly. Uh, Won't be doing that this year, I don't think. Right. Okay. And so this against the backdrop, of course, of rising case numbers in, it sounds like, all the Scandinavian countries. Yeah, we're seeing uh, cases going through the roof. Uh, And the mink issue, to me, is still got some twists and turns, I should add, because everyone now is looking at Denmark and saying, listen, you've got coronavirus in your mink. Uh, Denmark has kind of been branded with this. They're going to great extents to try and say, listen, we're trying to figure this out and trying to wipe out this virus. But the WHO semi on Saturday had a press conference in which they let something uh, slip that was I was previously unaware of. But they said that Denmark, in fact, is one of six countries where there has been mink-related coronavirus strains. Matter of fact, in Denmark, there's been 214 people infected with other mink coronavirus strains since June. There's 12 of this cluster 5 variant that's causing all the concern. But we've also apparently had coronavirus uh, mutations in mink and then infecting people in Sweden, Holland, Spain, Italy, and the United States, along with Denmark this year. Okay, that obviously is frightening for a lot of people. How have other countries in the European Union reacted to this news? Yeah, uh, there's a lot of trepidation uh, towards Denmark right now. Now, keep in mind, with the current climate, there's not a whole lot of people that are traveling uh, anywhere in Europe at the moment. But that said, uh, the United Kingdom over the weekend, as of early Saturday morning, slammed the door on Denmark. They said, uh, unless you hold a, a valid visa, unless you are a permanent resident or a British citizen, If you are coming from Denmark, you cannot be allowed to enter the country by air, by ferry, by channel, whatever way you're showing up at the border, you are not going to be let in. Matter of fact, it's so severe that even if you are a truck driver uh, without British citizenship and you have come through Denmark with a cargo of whatever and you show up in a ferry or, or whatever, you are not allowed into the country. And so that has caused a lot of concern here in Denmark. We want to have good relations, obviously, and they're uh, really, really nervous about the uh, international perception of the mink coronavirus strain here in Denmark. Matter of fact, they held an English-only uh, press conference over the weekend aimed at international media. That's something you only see in the Scandinavian countries when they really, really want to get a message out. And how is the general public kind of in Denmark reacting to this? Now, there's been some panic here, obviously. I mean, you don't 
announce a cluster five variant and say, listen, this could totally undermine the effectiveness of a vaccine, which everybody is praying shows up sooner than later, as we all endure this global pandemic. You don't lock down a huge chunk of the country in some of the harshest restrictions that Denmark has ever issued. And keep in mind that we were among the leading countries in the world back in the spring uh, nationally for for national lockdown restrictions. Um, There's a lot of trepidation here. And I'm seeing things where people are like, well, what if what if an infected mink escapes a farm and is running around? You know, there's people that live close to some of these farms and, and they're a little bit alarmed. We also have uh, a situation where, I mean, they're they're slaughtering literally hundreds and hundreds of thousands of mink a day trying to meet the yeah. you know 15 to 17 million that are in the country. And now we're getting uh, stories out about how, you know, you have these garbage trucks or whatever. They're hauling literally hundreds of thousands of mink bodies and dumping them in these silos and these facilities that are dealing with the bodies and they're finding live ones in there that were not killed and having to kill them there and then concerns about whether those animals have been um you know killed as humanely as regulations are supposed to allow and or if there's live ones that they've missed are they getting you know escaping the containment area so uh the sense in denmark is you know i wouldn't say a full-blown panic but people are very 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 sort of heightened as far as their awareness in this particular story. What a mess. All right, Shane, uh, thank you for that. We'll be checking back in with you. Sounds good to me. Stay safe. You too. That's Shane Woodford, former CKW reporter, freelancer in Denmark, talking about the mess that Denmark finds itself in because they detected a mutated form of the coronavirus, this COVID-19 virus, in the mink population, and it's just turned into a you know big mess there in what to do about that. Neighboring countries very concerned about that as well. Well, our Nikki Wright Meyer is working on a special project. It sounds kind of fun, actually, and she joins us now to tell us more about it. Hi, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, this is some year-end programming that we do here at CKNW. I know on the one hand, you're thinking, wait a minute, it's, you know, it's only November. But on the other hand, think of how fast this year went by. We no have kidding, to start right? preparing for what's coming up, you know, come the end of the year, because it's soon going to be time to look back on what a strange and crazy year that 2020 was. Now, I love a good best of list. Um, mm. And I look forward to this time of year because it, I love the best books of the year list. And I kind of check all the different places for them. And I check them off and I see which ones I read and I do that whole thing. Uh, but when you start looking at this year, you can really kind of define define this year as and is divided between before the virus hit and then after the virus hit. Yeah, it is so funny when you look back on the month of January because that was a time when we were sort of living in this this blissful ignorance. I mean, there certainly was very big events that were happening in the world, very serious events. We had the wildfires in Australia. We had a plane that was shot down over Iran, which killed over 50 Canadian citizens. So that was a very serious world event that was happening as well. But then we had some of these funny, interesting things that were making the news that, you know, in hindsight, you go, what? You know, that's what was consuming our minds at that point in the year. It seems like it was so long ago. You know, one of my favorite stories from the month of January, as I was looking back on things that happened in the news, is a sports story. And sort of for multiple reasons. One, because it is quite a cute and funny story. But also, it reminds you of a time when fans could actually go into the stands (laughs) at a sporting game. What? We used to do that? craziness is this? Back in my day, fans could even go to the stands. Uh, The story, it's really cute. I'd love to share it with you now. I think that some of our listeners may be reminded of it. So, 
This is back uh, January 20th. There was a headline in the news, and the headline read, A diehard Kansas City Chiefs fan may be their unlucky charm, so they've asked him to stay home. (laughs) So this is the story of a guy named Charles Penn, and basically he was deemed to be bad luck for the Kansas City Chiefs. And this started just kind of as a joke amongst his friends. You know, if you watch a lot of sports, maybe you have that one friend who they get up to go to the bathroom and suddenly your team scores a point and you go, oh, come on, you know, you got to leave the room, you're bad luck. Essentially, that's what was happening with this guy, Charles. It started as this joke with his buddies, but it began to pick up traction with other fans. And then even the quarterback, Patrick Mahomes, and other players on the team started to joke about it on social media as well. This poor guy. (laughs) Believe me, hilarious. It had gone so viral by this point because... He tweeted out a video of himself on January 12th. He's dressed in all of his Chiefs gear, and he was leaving the stadium after the first quarter. When you say, poor guy, listen to this. It was a playoff game, and the team was down 21-0. to So he said, I'm leaving after the first quarter because... Just in case my friends are right, they've told me I need to leave the stadium. I have to go home. (laughs) So I will take them up on that and I will, in fact, leave. Now, the funny thing is and why this went so viral is because after he left, after the first quarter, suddenly the team came back. So in the second quarter, they scored a whole bunch of points and they ended up winning the game 51 to 31. (laughs) This poor guy. Oh, it's hilarious. Uh, it's so then funny. he also sat out uh, the next Sunday's playoff game against the Tennessee Titans at the Chiefs' request. So by this point, the team's going, you know, do, do you mind not, not coming, coming to the, the game? game? Lo and behold, they won that game. They headed to the Super Bowl. And now, in hindsight, what do we know about the Kansas City Chiefs this past year? We know that they went on to win the Super yeah. Bowl 31-20 on February this 2nd. Well, you know what? He had a pretty good 2020. His start to 2020 was great. The Kansas City Chiefs were actually singling him out. So, Yeah, exactly right. I mean, that's just a really ex- uh, an example of a fun headline that I saw in January. But it was so eerie to look back and see some of those early headlines that hinted at what was to come with the coronavirus. You know, January 17th, we're looking at headlines saying that people had fallen ill because of the coronavirus. The headline reads, a second person has died from a new SARS-like virus in China. January 24th, we're starting to see headlines saying that there's cases showing up in North America. The first case that we think occurred in Canada was January 25th. A man in his 50s flew from Wuhan to Toronto. So there was, you know, some some fun headlines that reminded us of a better time and then some eerie headlines to read as well. Okay, I just got to mention this one that's on your list, though. What was the deal with this YouTuber who tried to soak up a pool with a hundred thousand paper towels <laughs> is that true this. i love this headline so much the headline reads youtuber who tried to soak up a pool with a hundred thousand paper towels criticized for wasting one hundred thousand paper towels well duh <laughs> yes yeah. this is true if you remember particularly at the beginning of this year and through last year as well uh, kids on youtube kids on TikTok or social media tried to go viral by doing these really ridiculous stunts. So this kid named Tyler, he faced a whole bunch of backlash after he said, you know, can a million paper towels absorb a swimming pool? So, you know, eventually the idea was to throw a whole bunch of paper towels in his pool and see if it would lead to anything. Lo and behold, it led to just a whole bunch of criticism. 2020, clearly at the beginning, we had too much time on our hands. Uh, Nikki, (laughs) thank you very much for that. So we've been talking quite a bit about Remembrance Day, which is tomorrow. And just a reminder there, there will not be any outdoor hosted ceremonies like we have had in many years past. 
Which is really too bad, I know, because, you know, when I was a kid, I would say those were sparsely attended. And in the last 20 years, we have just seen a huge resurgence in the number of people taking their kids and their families and everyone uh, to commemorate those who have served at a Remembrance Day ceremony. So they're going to be online. But if you're still, if you're looking for a way to support, say, the Legion, the work that it does, um, you know, whether it's wearing a poppy or you think maybe you didn't have a chance to get one this year, because again, though, that was also different. Uh, check out their store online. If you go to the Royal Canadian Legion's website, they actually have a poppy store. And this year, which is great, I was so happy to see this, they're selling all sorts of kind of poppy-related merchandise uh, that you can buy instead of just a poppy. You can always get the poppy too. But they have poppy jewelry that you can wear. They've got tote bags. They have face masks. And I love the face masks, but unfortunately they have been sold out, it feels like, forever. Uh, they're slowly kind of releasing more and more, but the demand has been huge on those. But they've got water bottles. They've got all sorts of great kind of poppy-related merchandise for you to check out. So please go online. It's a great way to show your support uh, this Remembrance Day. And if you're looking for an event to go to online, right? You think, well, where should I go? What should I check out? We've got one for you right now. The Surrey Centre Orchestra is trying to help out with this by offering a virtual ceremony. And to talk more about that, the music director, Stuart Martin, joins us now. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning. Now tell me a bit about this event for tomorrow. What's going to happen? Yeah, so the Surrey City Orchestra, to just give you a little background on that, is a new professional orchestra that has been developing in Surrey for the past year and a half. And so we realized quickly uh, in the summer that events were not going to be happening in the, in the fall. So we decided that we would produce a virtual Remembrance Day concert just to um, really invoke the emotions of a Remembrance Day ceremony, but obviously uh, as a free resource for anyone looking for it. Okay, so this is such a nice idea. Um, so you want everybody to kind of just come in online and take a look at what you're going to be doing. What are you going to be performing? Yeah, so we've separated our orchestra into three sections. So because we had to do this in person, uh, we had to do them in smaller different ensembles. So our first ensemble is a string orchestra where we do more solemn music uh, like Nimrod's Enigma Variations and Air from Holberg Suite. Uh, and then we move into your more traditional readings of um, uh, In Flanders Field. We've got The Last Post. Piper's Lament, and then we move into military marches with a concert band, and then we end it all off with a big jazz band. Nice. Okay, so what is the website, Stuart, if people want to check this out? So if everyone could go to www.surreycityorchestra.org, the video will be online there, and then if you would like to download the video for better quality, uh, just send us a note and we'll send you the link. Okay, this sounds like so much fun. Also, how great is it that Surrey has its own orchestra now? That sounds like it must have been a long time in the works. It really, really was. So the city of Surrey is the second largest city in BC, and it was kind of surprising that we've never had an established professional orchestra. So it's been a long time coming and a lot of organization, but uh, we're really starting to go. It's unfortunate that events had to be moved online, but we're doing our best. And so where do you perform in normal times? If there were a place for people to watch you, where would it be? <laughs> All over the city of Surrey. So we really go from venue to venue. The city of Surrey doesn't have an established um, large performing arts center quite yet. Uh, so right now we perform at the Bell uh, Performing right. Arts Center. We perform at different churches. So really across the board. Cool. Okay, that's something you obviously need to work on. So very quickly then, Stuart, what is the link? Where can people check this out tomorrow? 
right on our website, www.surreycityorchestra.org. Sounds like a plan. Thank you so much, Stuart. Thank you. That is Stuart Martin, the music director for the orchestra there in Surrey, and they've got some special Remembrance Day ceremonies going on that you can join them for. Uh, What a great idea. I can't believe it took so long for Surrey to get its own orchestra. I would love to check that out tomorrow for sure. How would you feel about opening the door to accept a package that you've ordered, and it turns out there's nobody there, nothing waiting for you except a drone that is bringing you your package? Well, that's not just the future. It sounds like it's here. A BC company will be the first to deliver packages by drone because they have gotten approval to do this from the Canadian Transportation Agency. So we thought, let's find out more about this company. Joining us now is Philip Reese, the CEO of Indoor Robotics Incorporated. Philip, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. This is exciting. Tell us about this technology. It certainly is. Well, the technology we've been working on for, gosh, five or six years now, building on it step by step so that we can have drones that can fly further, safer. Um, A couple of years ago, we were one of the first, well, we were the first in Canada to be given permission to fly beyond visual line of sight, which is literally that means the drone can fly further away than you can see. Um, But it was only last week that we received the CTA, Canadian Transport Agency, approval to carry cargo, as if we were an air air cargo company like Air Canada or WestJet. It's it's an aircraft now that can carry and deliver cargo. Okay, so how would this work then? How how many drones would you have in a particular neighbourhood delivering packages? Um, it's a good question, and obviously it'll depend on demand. Um, at the moment, we, have, we do have a fleet of six of these drones. They're called the Indro Wayfinder. They're about 25 kilograms, and they can carry 10 kilograms of payload each, so 10 kilograms of cargo. If you imagine that's sort of like a rather large shoebox, stuff full right. of documents, that's about the weight and size. Uh, is this more efficient than a delivery driver? Like, how do you make it more efficient? Mm-hmm. Um, in certain circumstances, it will be. I mean, you know, we're doing deliveries now in Vancouver Island to the Gulf Islands. So there we're basically competing, as it were, with the ferry. Um, so, a, you know, a 30, 35-minute ferry ride we can do in about five or six minutes. But equally, if we're downtown, um, then we're delivering from, um, you know, in Victoria, for example, if we're delivering from one side to the other, it's is it quicker to put, give it to a cycle courier? In some instances, it may be. Or is it quicker to fly from roof to roof? And again, some it may be quicker to do it that way. So it won't be an answer for everything. Um, certain commercial outlets it will work really well for. If you imagine Vancouver, if you want to deliver from downtown Vancouver over to the North Shore, Literally, that'll only take you three minutes, whereas you can imagine getting in your car, fighting traffic, going over the bridge a lot longer. Right. So it sounds like it's not like everybody's going to be getting one of these at their door kind of thing. It's it's really going to benefit certain circumstances. Exactly. Yes. I'm sure the technology will develop as we go through through testing and through deployment and then through acceptance. And it'll get more and more so so that we will all end up receiving parcels at some day. Um, that we order on Amazon or wherever. Um, but at the moment, I think it'll be more commercial to commercial and hospital to hospital, um, businesses, retail perhaps to, to retail. We are doing an experiment at the moment with um, UBC, University of British Columbia, where we're going to be delivering to basically what looks like a large cluster box. Right. The drone will land on top, it'll drop its payload, and then there'll be six compartments underneath that'll drop down into one of these compartments, and whoever owns that compartment will get a message on their phone to say their parcel has arrived, 
And then by the time they get there, the drone will have taken off and it'll be on to its next Mm. mission. So are your numbers limited, like uh, how many drones you can fly in a certain area? Because, you know, there's a lot of deliveries. I don't think people also want to see a whole bunch of these flying in their neighborhood. Um, We have done quite a bit of research on that over the last um, few years, and we found um, when you fly the drone at 250 feet AGL, so 250 feet above, above the ground, uh, you can't hear it at all, and you can't really see it. It's a dot in the sky. So the, the, the concerns are more when it's landing to drop off its cargo and when it's taking off again. Uh, and th- those are noises that we're working on. You know, we're reducing the prop and noise by changing the, the design of them and um, scheduling flight times. That, that won't make a difference. These drones, because they're a little bigger, have got slower prop speeds, so they, they're not that whiny sort of noise that yeah. you they sound that if you have a car engine running at the same time, you won't be able to hear the drone. So are big companies interested in this technology? Are you going to keep it? Or will you lease it out? How will this work? Um, we're certainly embracing um, big companies as collaborators and partners. Um, we have had a contract with Canada Post to investigate this kind of technology for the last couple of years. We did a big deployment with uh, London Drugs last year. So it's definitely going to be opening it up to work alongside the companies that you already use and work with. Um, It won't be a standalone business. It'll be a a service that's added on to something that already exists. Right. So it'll be kind of a gradual usage of this. Yeah. Um, If you can imagine um, services that you already use, like Canada Post and London Drugs, but then maybe less so as well, sort of, you know, Air Canada Cargo or... um, uh, Harbour Air, for example, a nice mm-hmm. local one. So you could put an item on a Harbour Air flight in Victoria, the seaplane could fly to Vancouver, and then when it arrives, arrives in Vancouver, you could swap it over to the drone and fly it over to the North Shore. All right, makes sense. I guess the future really has arrived then. Philip, thank you. Thank you very much. That's Philip Reese. He's the CEO of Indro Robotics Incorporated. They have officially, they're a BC company, and they have officially gotten their approval from the Canadian Transportation Agency for being able to deliver packages by drone. But as you can tell, there's still a lot of logistics to be worked out. You don't want a swarm of these things in your neighborhood, right? Delivering a ton of packages. So there will be some working all of that out. But are you comfortable with something like that? You can email me, simmy at cknw.com. Well, you know, BC isn't the only province struggling to contain COVID-19 right now. Just take a look at what's happening in Ontario as well. Just this morning, they set another record number of new cases, 1,388, 15 deaths. Uh, That is just for today. Just released those numbers this morning. So yeah, we are certainly not alone. Differences here in BC, we do have these new provincial public health orders to try to tamp down these cases. So for a two-week period, we are really being asked to forego those social gatherings, uh, you know, indoor fitness classes, that kind of thing, in order to bring these numbers down. Now, a lot of businesses are being impacted by this, including some gyms. So we wanted to talk about that. Joining us now is Brent Price, uh, the owner of Hustle. Brent, thanks for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me. So tell me, what has business been like? Before these orders came in this weekend, what was business like before? Um, business is actually really good. We've um, over the past since we reopened July first, we've implemented a really high standard of cleanliness and sanitization processes in our facilities. So we found that our group of or our community felt quite safe coming into our studio. Um, so much so that through us and our sister company, um, Spin Society, uh, since reopening, we've welcomed over fifty thousand check-ins at our one facility in Mount Pleasant. 
Okay. And we haven't had a single case track track back to us in that time. And up until the Couvet, the recent closures, we've actually had mostly sold out classes. And but by saying sold out, I mean this the spots that are available are sold because we're operating at less than a 50% capacity. Yeah, I was going to ask you, so what, what kind of indoor restrictions do you have? Like, how much space am I going to have if I come work out there? Uh, at least six feet. So in our within our spin studio, we have plexiglass separating the bikes, and the bikes are six feet apart. Um, and in the group training studio, um, all the mats are at least six feet apart from each other. Okay, so you've gone above and beyond. Would you say that you've done more than other gyms have done? Um, to be honest, I have gone into other facilities in the city, and I think the Vancouver um, group fitness community uh, independently has gone above and beyond. I'm actually part of like an independent studio owners group, and uh, we before we reopened, we compared notes, and all of the studios that are on that group um, came together, and we said, what, what can we do even more than what we're supposed to be doing to make sure that when we reopen, our community will be safe? Now, there are some that I can't speak to because they are not part of that group or I haven't been to their studio. And there have been some exposures within the city. Yeah. Um, but to be honest, compared to other um, places within Vancouver, our exposure level has been quite low. Right. But are you concerned, though, that you do have some of these places perhaps that aren't doing as a, the same job that you are? and that that will negatively impact all gym facilities. Absolutely, and I think that's what exactly what we're seeing now, is that there have been certain um, studios within the city who haven't been following the proper procedures and have higher exposure rates, and then now we see an industry-wide shutdown instead of just holding those accountable that aren't following the same policies that, that we are. Okay, so what do you think would be a better way to tackle this? Um, to be honest, I feel like we've seen this coming. This was no surprise with the rising cases, the known of the second wave happening. I feel like perhaps they should have um, implemented this before, but done it on a case-by-case basis. Because now what they've done is we all have to shut down. Um, and we're, we're honestly all just waiting for what the new updated COVID procedure is. Right. Because they shut us down before they actually um, even right. created but one. You may already be meeting those procedures. Yeah, exactly. And we think we are. We definitely think that we've gone above and beyond it. We're not, we're not concerned of whether we will be able to reopen. Ours is more concerned right. as to, to when. So, Brent, um, do you think so, the, that enforcement would have worked better here? Like you're saying, okay, if you were concerned about gyms and indoor you know, gym facilities, then you should have been checking on those more. A hundred percent. Because since July 1st, we haven't had one single health authority in our studio. Nobody's come to check up on what you're doing. Not a single person has come into our facility to check in on our policies or procedures and to tell us if we can do anything better or anything or if we're doing a great job since and that since we opened a few months ago. Right. So I feel like they could have been knowing what was coming right. because there's definitely this is no surprise to anybody, I don't think. Um, I feel like the, the public health authority could have been a little more prepared in this situation. So for now, then you're closed for two weeks. Yes. As of right now, we're closed until the 21st, um, and we're kind of just waiting to hear what the public health authorities have in store for us as to like what they want us to update within our policies and how they're going to ensure that we are following it. Now, here's the thing about other businesses as well, Brent. Like when you saw other businesses that weren't kind of following the rules, I'm sure that was very frustrating for you. Is there a mechanism for you to phone up and say, listen, I know another gym that's not following the rules? 
Yeah, to be honest, there. I believe if we could, we would be able to make a formal complaint, but I don't know if we can definitely or, or if we can argue that group training facilities are the should be reopened. Like, right. I definitely think it unfairly paints us as problematic, um, because even as of right now, I have the ability to go to any large big box gym and and work out there. But the the main issue with that is if I because I am a member of a, a large, of a weightlifting gym as well. Mm-hmm. If I go there, it's up to me as a customer to wipe down my own weights and and make sure that I'm properly socially distancing. Whereas in a group training facility, that's actually the job of the studio. So within Hustle, no one touches the weights until they the coach with a mask on and sanitized hands will collect the weights that you want to use for the day put it on your mat and then you wear a mask in to the studio until you actually get to your mat. And then you take your mask off. Your weights are already there. You have the class. And then when the class is done, you leave your weights in the middle of the mat, you put your mask back on and you exit through a different door than when you came in so that there's no congestion in the hallway. Um, And then we sanitize your mat and your weights after class. So the, the sanitization process is really thorough. Whereas in a gym, it's, if I decide not to wash my weights, they don't get washed. So you're just, it's frustrating then for you because you're thinking, I'm following the rules here. I wish there was some enforcement to make everybody else do the same. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely think that there should have been um, a bit of a more um, thought out plan than what mm-hmm. it is. But the thing is with us is you'll notice within the, especially within small boutique fitness studios, we're really dedicated to our community. So it's not that we're arguing um, that. We, that there shouldn't be a closure, that there shouldn't be anything that is going to like improve our health and keep us safe and right. make sure that we're doing our part to protect our community from COVID. I think it just unfairly paints us as problematic mm-hmm. when there's, I think, the, I think the problem is bigger than just us. All right. Well, Brent, listen, thanks so much for your time this morning. Hey, no worries. Thank you so much. And best really of luck. It. Yeah, best of luck. That's Brent Price, owner of Hustle. Uh, that is kind of a small studio gym there. And you heard him say frustrating because they've gone above and beyond, but they know of some gyms that have not. And now they're all in the same boat. I know, a little Christmas music, but there's a very good reason for that. Uh, yes, normally we wouldn't start thinking about this until at least after Remembrance Day, but there's a lot of charitable organizations out there that are going to need your help this year. And so we thought, let's talk about that because this is something that you can actually do this week to help out. The Lower Mainland Christmas Bureau is holding a toy drive through Thursday and Friday of this week. And Chris Bayless, the executive director, is joining us now to talk about it. Hi, Chris. Hey, Sammy, how are you? I am good, thank you. Listen, this seems so early, but I'm assuming there's a good reason for that. You kind of need to raise awareness, right? Well, once we realized that COVID was canceling all of our traditional events and we lost our biggest event of the year, which is traditionally in December, we had to look around for venues and availability. And the PE stepped up in a big way and said, hey, it went with the entire PE grounds. So this was, a, this was the days available, so we went ahead and did it. Okay, so how is this going to work? So people are going to drive through the PE grounds at gate 14, just west of the playout entrance. The difference is because it's socially distanced and safe, they have to go to ticketleader.ca and sign up. So the PE will have a, we have a large part of the PE drive through where they stop. They register and then they drive through. They get they do their toy donation, drop off monetary donations. Then they get a bag of mini donuts and a coffee for doing that. Okay, that's all I need to hear. Is it? There's exactly. <laughs> not only are you doing something good for people, you're going to get a free bag of mini donuts. Exactly. 
This is a great idea. Were you worried, Chris, at this point about donations for the Christmas season? Yeah, we've been working with all of our community partners and all the other bureaus, and it's it's all the common thread is because most of us are volunteer-driven and donation-driven, we've got about eight weeks to do everything for the whole year. And, of course, that's not working out. So we've been, we've been scratching our heads and digging around, looking at things to do differently. Okay, so what would this replace? What would you normally be doing at this time of year? So normally we have about 30 events in the course of October through December. The most important event we have from a toy and financial point is the Pan Pacific Christmas Wish Breakfast. That, of course, could not happen. So this is kind of replacing that. It's more enhancing it because we're anticipating it being back next year. And to make this, and also our toy run is traditionally at the PE. So right. between the PE and the PAN and ourselves, we came up with this idea. So the PAN is supporting it with their staff who volunteer, and the PE's been a big, has been a big supporter of it. And a bunch of corporate people have come on board to help underwrite some of the costs of it. So it's basically, this, this, is, our, this is our big event for the whole year now, and it's in November, which is really weird. Yeah. And uh, it's going to be challenging. That's why we thought we better help you kind of get the word out on this, because it's this week, right? Thursday it and is. Friday. Exactly. It's the earliest we've done a major event of this kind. It's about a month ahead of normal. But as we've seen with the COVID crisis deepening and social gathering becoming more and more restricted, we basically got to get it done while we can because we still have to serve all the families and we still have to support all the Christmas bureaus. And that, you know, December 25th waits for no one. No, it does not. Okay, so what kind of toys, any age groups, any preferences? We're always looking for STEM toys, you know, science, technology, educational, math, engineering. Uh, we don't need any more stuffed animals. I know people are tired of hearing that, but it's true. <laughs> Uh, stuff for teens, gift cards are always good. We can use gift cards for um, a multiple, you know, multiple groups of teenager, of teenagers, boys, girls, preteens. Uh, my financial donations are always welcome. We're going to spend a lot of money on gift cards this year. With so it's, it, it's, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be challenging. Like I, I said, we've spoken with a lot of the other bureaus, and everybody's scrambling. Everybody's doing it differently. It's really hitting the smaller bureaus and the more volunteer-driven bureaus because. We can't use a lot of volunteers this year. We can't have them in the building. We can't social distance. We can't. We have to guarantee right. health and safety of our donors, our volunteers, and of course the people we serve. Right? Yeah, of course. So tell us once again, Chris, time and place. How can we help out? It will be Thursday, November twelfth, from six a.m. to six p.m. at the Peony. Go to ticketleader.ca, sign up for a time slot so we can uh, manage the flow of people, bring a toy or some money for the Christmas Bureau and uh, Gate 14 at the Playland entrance. Okay, sounds like a plan. Chris, thank you. Thank you, Sam. Always a pleasure. All right, it's Chris Bayless, Executive Director of the Lower Mainline Christmas Bureau. The Pan Pacific Christmas Wish Breakfast, you know, partnered with Global on that, has been a huge event every year. If you normally participate in that, this is going to be replacing it. And it's this week, as Chris said, earlier than they have ever had it before. But get those unwrapped toys, gift cards, whatever you can do ready Thursday and Friday of this week at the PE and to boot, they're going to give you a little bag of mini donuts and a coffee to go with it. So we're talking about some things that you can do tomorrow to commemorate uh, Remembrance Day because we can't all gather to do that. So we've talked about a number of different things you can find online. Well, here's something else for you. Fight to the Finish. It is a new documentary. It's coming out tomorrow. It will be on the History Channel. And it is the incredible story of Canadian veterans sharing their experiences from World War II. And Barry Stevens is the director and executive producer of Fight to the Finish. He joins us now to talk more about it. Good morning, Barry. 
Good morning. How are you? I am good, thank you. But it must have been amazing to hear some of these stories. Oh, yeah. It was uh, a, a privilege to, to interview these men. And, uh, you know, some of them are very old. One guy's 100 years old. Others are in their 80s. But, but it's, it, it, when, you, when you see them, I think the viewer will have the sense quite quickly of them as young men, sometimes even boys. One guy actually from British Columbia signed up, lied about his age and signed up when he was 16 and oh. then he's dropped into hell. So you, you get the sense of, of, of their experience very directly. You know, a soldier's experience is 100 meters wide, 100 meters in front of him. That's it. He doesn't know anything much, much about Churchill or Hitler or grand strategy. And that's what we try to, that's what we try to capture. Right. The story of Canadians who fought, whether in the Navy or the air or, um, or on land, uh, and, and, and they're very personal and very emotional experience. And isn't it remarkable how even after all these years that their memories are as sharp and as bright as they were, that they can still tell you those stories? I think that powerful experiences, traumatic experiences sometimes, I don't want to mean it was all traumatic. Uh, there's also, you know, the triumph of liberation and so forth, but they're etched into memory. And so these guys, sometimes it's like they're right there when they're telling it to you. And that combined, I hope, with uh, our, our footage, our archival film from the war, really gives the right. viewer a sense of what it was like. And, and maybe appreciate what was accomplished, that this was not just some exercise, some you know, red team versus blue team battle. This was the defeat of fascism. And very important to get these memories, because it is 75 years. And they are very old, and many of yeah. the guys we talk to are, in fact, already no longer with us. And next time around, the next big anniversary, there won't be anybody. I think it's important for people to hear these memories. It is. Barry, what made you want to tell this story? What brought you to it? Me? I, I, we, we did a series called War Story a couple of years ago, which is pretty popular, and, mm -hmm. and it, was, it was very much the same in a much smaller form. This is a much grander attempt. And, and I just, I suppose I'm fascinated by, by the war, fascinated by war, by why people fight, and also by maybe learning how not to do it, <laughs> if, you, if you want to be honest. And one guy says, um, there's nothing nice about war. War is terrible. It's the failure of humanity. But when situations like Hitler present themselves, Canadians like him, he says, like me, he says, had to do something about it. I'm very interested in, in that, that desire to, to do the right thing and to work with others to, uh, to accomplish the defeat of Hitler and Japanese imperialism. Was there a and to risk their lives doing it. It, it, it? And in the end, of course, what came out of the Second World War was an attempt to make a more just world and a more united right. world. And to some extent, we've succeeded. Was there a particular story, though, that really stayed with you when you heard it? Oh, there, there are there are so many. I mean, there is one guy who is. Um, He's a he's a Canadian now, and he was a show a, a Holocaust survivor, um, who, whose entire experience is mind blowing. We couldn't fit in enough of him. There's also the guys who who um, who flew over Germany in the Air Force about 
half of them on the air crews died, and yet they kept going. And um, yeah, those guys, and also a lot of people, everybody knows about Juno Beach, or at least I hope they do. Mm-hmm. And we tell that story, of course. But there's also the week after that, when the Canadians were deeper into France than anybody else, than the Americans or the British, and, and they bore the brunt of the SS counterattack. And it's the stories of men, I mean, I don't mean to be too morose, but the, the, a guy a guy holding a young kid as he's dying and he's crying for his mm. mother while they're under shell fire, and he, in the end he has to take him away and bury him in the woods. Now, that sounds miserable. I don't want to <laughs> leave the audience. But those are, but those are so real depressed. people experiences. That's not a movie, it's right? Real. That's not a it's fictional real. movie, yeah. That's right. And But there's also the joy of... of of going through these Dutch towns in the Netherlands, because the Canadians uh, were the liberated most of the Netherlands. And the gratitude, the intensity yeah. of the joy of the people who, who to this day feel a connection with Canada and and people having trouble driving their tanks through the town because everyone's climbing on top of them. <laughs> and by the way, a lot of marriages took place. I'll bet. I'll a, bet. A, a lot of Canadians brought Dutch war brides home. Look, Jimmy, there's there's a hundred stories like this. I I'm could sure. uh, I could go on. Well, you know what? There, we'll have there. to watch. Uh, we'll have to watch the film then, Barry. So listen, thanks so much. We'll check it out tomorrow on the History Channel. I hope you do. Thank you. All right, that's Barry Stevens, a director and executive producer of Fight to the Finish. It's Canadian veterans sharing their experiences from World War II. It airs on the History Channel tomorrow. So please check it out.